0: And uh, today we're going to be discussing quite an interesting idea in and of itself, an idea that relates to just the way that we live in everyday life and more specifically how it manifests itself. And that idea being uh, individuals as we live in society, as we go on and live our lives as people, we live very, very different lives. That's kind of the nature of individuality and subjectivity. And yet somehow, f- for some reason or some way of life that may escape us, we still arrive at similar conclusions. And these conclusions can be philosophical beliefs. They can be religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs. They could be anything that any idea that people um, attach themselves to. And it's very interesting how even like like I was saying before, even when you have completely different experiences, you still arrive at the similar conclusions.
1: So just to add to that, what we're trying to do here today is go more deeper into our stories, uh, Xavier's and my story, uh, because we found it very interesting how we both come from very different backgrounds and very different cultures and very different life paths. Yet we stand at a point in life where we have very similar beliefs uh, and we have very similar philosophies and thus we have this podcast that we're doing here discussing these ideas. And so I was quite fascinated by this notion that how can two people or or people in general from such different backgrounds and different cultural values and whatnot come to such similar conclusion and such um, intersections in life uh, despite the differences that we have. And so in that regards, um, we wanted to kind of explore and go deep into our personal stories, our subjective life experiences, and what makes us us, and what brings us to this point today and in this, uh, to this point in the here and now, and why is utopia here and now for us? Um, what experiences shape our, our stories and bring us to this point today? That's what we would like to be discussing. And... I think we can get started by um, kind of thinking about what bring, well, same question, but who am I, who are we, and and what brings us here today? So Xavier, would you like to share a little bit about, or or get us started off on your story of uh, what has shaped you as a person and made you, you, and brought you to this moment in time and space?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously there's so much to unpack with that question. So I'll just begin very briefly with maybe describing who I think I am and just going into a bit of detail on the current, the current situation I'm in, and then maybe diving back into the the past and things of those sorts. So, um, if you don't know me already, my name is Xavier. I'm a current student, a university student studying in Sydney, Australia. I'm studying business at the moment. And aside from business, I'm very interested in philosophical ideas. And uh, alongside many other ideas, such as like psychology, evolution and biology, economics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in terms of who I would describe myself, I would describe myself as someone that's quite a curious person, someone that's always asking the questions why, um, irrespective of cognitive biases that are obviously in place. Um, and I'd also describe myself as someone that's quite lighthearted and always wanting to know what the balance of things are and kind of looking at the other side of the situation and also looking at things from yeah like i said from both sides and trying to see the duality in life and also just to try and see the other side that maybe people aren't willing to see or maybe just diving deeper into why people believe the things they believe um, and that comes from a bunch of life experiences some of which i can dive into now if you'd like me to do that shashwa but i think in terms of in terms of my historic a bit of my history a bit of who I, who I am where who I came from so obviously I've grown up in Australia for for a few years so when I was I lived in Australia until I was about five years old and then um, my, fa- my family and I migrated over to India we moved to a city called Hyderabad India and as a as a young Australian kid that doesn't really know anything um, given my age it was a moment It was a very it was a most pivotal moment of my life moving to a foreign country and moving to a country that is not only thinks differently and acts differently and is different in every sense of the word um it was also very important for my just general formative years um and i think you can account you can attest to that shash with with kind of growing up in another country um such as india and nepal and going to university in america um but I think to start us off there, I just wanted to park that for there for a second and kind of that's the, the initial foundations of my life. I wanted to ask you, Shash, maybe you can tell us a bit about who you are in this current moment um, and then we can transition into, like I said, our, kind of our history, our life stories.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you for sharing. So um, I completely resonated with what you were saying. It was like you stole what I wanted to say and who I was in this moment. <laughs> But that's the point of this podcast, right, which is to explore that we are so similar today, yet coming from such different backgrounds. But let me give it a different, uh, let me try to give it a different perspective or give different words to who I think I am. Um, So I would say I, so right now I am also studying business in America at Babson College, Um, coming from a very conservative business family in India. Uh, my dad is from India, my mom is from Nepal, like Xavier was mentioning, um, and I am also very, very fascinated by all these philosophical ideas, uh, from more from the eastern part of the world because that's where I've mainly been born and brought up, uh, but also western um, parts of the world. But aside from philosophy, uh, I am quite, uh, I would say I am really immersed in artistic experiences and uh, my childhood has brought me to this moment now uh, to, to kind of be immersed in art and poetry and philosophy and whatnot. But aside from that, I am also very, very interested in the more objective side of things like business, like economics, like politics, um, like, like psychology, evolutionary biology, anything, you know. Uh, I am always down to ask better questions and, and go deeper into things about why things are the way they are. And, and kind of exploring my curiosity. That's, that's, I think, one of the biggest similarities that we share. And I think that's most of us. We are born curious beings, but it is society, our, our, the, the propaganda machines that we go through, which, which kind of block our curiosity, stop us from asking these questions and kind of conform to to various beliefs. But that I think we can go into later. But yeah, that's a little bit about who I am. I would kind of say I... I've always felt like an outlier, an outcast, never fit, really fit in anywhere. I don't know if you resonate with that, Xavier, but since in, in the first yeah,
0: sure.
1: few years of my life, um, I like you said, first you were born in in, in Australia and then you moved to India. Uh, I also went through a similar experience, Not even though not completely different countries. I went through drastic changes in the kind of uh, cultural and education systems that I was a part of. So starting off, I was a part of, I studied in this in this schooling system called Waldorf education, which was which is a system based on like a holistic uh, approach to life and to education and to medicine started by this guy called Rudolf Steiner. Um, and then after seventh grade, which is sort of later than what you said, Xavier, but uh, after that, I went to an international school where it was a completely different set of values, cultures, and beliefs, and that's where I met Xavier. Um, But before I move ahead, I'd like to pause there and uh, turn it back to you, Xavier.
0: Thanks for passing that over. I think something that I I latched on quite curiously um, is this idea that we're both curious people. And that's something I would love to explore uh, as we kind of have this discussion and um, just explore how essentially we come from these really different backgrounds you come from a conservative family but going to a more experiential more steiner more liberal school and having those dualities be the foundations of your upbringing and me coming from quite a western uh in some sense conservative because australia is conservative and some to some degree to moving to a completely different way of life and maybe how those experiences in and of themselves uh, I guess are the foundations of how curiosity can flourish, but um the, that's just something to park off to the side, maybe put on the in the in a visual pinboard. But yeah, back to I guess back, back to the this idea of um, our history and our uh, our personal stories. I, I think the next thing the, the next place to go with me in terms of the history is to tr- show you guys essentially. Um, the, the landmarks for me. And so, like I said, I moved to India when I was about five or six years old. Um, and that was as a result of my, my father's job. And he, my father was working in the business industry. He was in the hospitality industry, to be exact. And those experiences um, with, with my dad in terms of his job and things of those sorts were really a big part of my interest in business. Um, despite, our, despite the, the divergent in path and the specializations. But that aside, I uh, moved there when I was five or six years old and spent the next 10 years of my life living in India. And I spent a lot of my time in international schools, uh, which was a fantastic experience. And like Shashwit said, that's where I met Shashwit and many people similar to and many different people as well. And I think a lot of, and you can attest to this Shashwit as well, a lot of the international schools where we were based in the Hyderabad, They had a very good mix of international students, but a a very also healthy mix of uh, I think it was probably like 70, 80% maybe national Indian students and then maybe 20, 30% of actual international students or something along that mix or Indian students were uh, American students that had Indian parents and then migrated to India, what we call NRIs, I think non-resident Indians. but yeah, so those those moments in my in my life played a very big, an important role, and I think the reason was is because when you're at such a young age, you are so impressionable to, I suppose, difference and diversity, and I just convergence of ideas that you never even consider before. And I remember, for example, there's something that I think is quite a funny thought is watching some things that are just as simple as watching the television become uh, very I suppose in some ways a very interesting experience so i can give you an example there used to be the show on that i used to watch called ninja hattori which i think is a i think it's a japanese show or something i'm not too sure it's an anime but they would dub they would dub the anime in hindi and i remember when i first moved there there was actually no english subtitles or english dub so i would be watching i was probably like seven or eight years old and i'd be watching these TV shows and complete Hindi, or in Telugu, which is the, the, the state language of where I was living. In. And for me, that was such a strange, in the, in, that was the strangest experience in the best possible way, because as someone that comes from Australia, having no sense of what identity is, having no sense of what it is to be a national citizen of a country, having no real grasp on the world, and being so um, impressionable to the, to the external stimuli that you kind of experience, seeing things like watching tv shows in foreign languages or even just interacting people that are different to you different skin color different language different religion as a young kid you don't question anything you just take it all in and take that as granted and you take that experience as that is just the way things are and i think in some ways that's maybe something we fail to do as adults because we may criticize things on on uh on on uh, face value instead of really accepting things that they, they are the way they are. Um, but that's a sort of initial, um, I guess initial history of my upbringing from a childhood perspective. And I think a lot of my experiences, uh, that I'm sure that you can resonate with Shash are all about just going through parts of your life with really and with like eyes wide open and just accepting things as they are and just accepting that these are the ways of life and really let making those moments shape you as an individual. Um, and I wouldn't say there's any particular part or a moment in my childhood that I would say was uh, pivotal, except for the fact that I was in, in immersed in a diverse uh, experience. I was immersed in a diverse culture and immersed around people that I would not even, I would never think, of being around, especially when you're so young, you just never think you'd be put in that, put in that, uh, put in that boat. Um, but I see you have a question. I would like to pass it over to you. to, to So I have a couple
1: of points to bring up. Um, one thing, yeah, just, for sure. this is kind of like side, but one observation I've had is like, when we speak we tend to speak in the second person and we start saying you know when you move to another country you have these experiences and you and you and you but my invitation to you is to take ownership of your own experiences and perhaps if if that's what what you felt was then uh, then say i felt this instead of saying you felt that okay so that's one thing aside from that i found it quite. I found it quite interesting how um, two points. One was how, as a child, you moved to this diverse culture, uh, you know, like going from Australia to India. And uh, you said you were quite young at this age, and you were just with your uh, eyes wide open, accepting things as they are. And I find that notion quite interesting accepting things as they are. Because as we grow older, as we become more conditioned, we start living in these. Uh, like states of judgment where things are right or wrong, and and we must do this or that, and that this is right and this is wrong, and I'm going to stay away from this and uh, accept this, which which has its own pros and cons. But I find this notion of accepting things they are quite interesting because I think what that does is brings us to a more a, a sense of peace and a sense of uh, serenity because you're able to surrender to what is real you're not saying oh no this is not true that this that you know you've just accepted it and so you are well not you well at least for me I am more uh, immersed in that experience when I am able to surrender to what is real and accept things as they are so that was one one interesting thing but I think what that can do as a child is it could create, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it could create a lot of disequilibrium in a person, especially you coming from Australia and into India, where there's people speaking different languages, eating different food, the way the place looks is different. People are are immersing in a different culture. Everything is different. Well, there's a lot of similar things, but everything is different. And you as a child who has not been conditioned, who's accepting things as they are, I'm curious about how this kind of, impacted your feeling sense? Because I believe that children, as children, we are more in the feeling world. And uh, I'm curious to know how you felt in this transition, uh, moving from from Australia to India and how this impacted your emotional being.
0: Hmm. Yeah, for sure. The, the, it's an interesting question. I guess I, I, from, a, from an emotional perspective, for me, the initial move or thinking about move, I remember in some sense was quite anxiety provoking. I remember the, the one thought I have in particular, and this is, this is not to, to be rude or insensitive. This was just what I was thinking as a five-year-old that I can remember quite, quite uh, strongly was, I remember my dad got the job and then he went over to India a few months earlier before my, my mom and my sister and I moved, um, and my younger brother. I remember asking my mom, are we going to live in tunnels? which was for so, for some and it's 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 actually pretty hilarious thinking about it on face value but then thinking about it now i actually don't know where i got that notion of living in tunnels and maybe that is actually how pervasive these ideas of the west versus the east are that it, we have to put everything to the side what is the media saying about those countries and then it inculcates even the young the young people even the age of 5 of what it is to live that was one anxiety provoking thought but i remember when we got there, things were very different, obviously. Um, another anxiety-provoking moment for me was, or a moment that maybe impacted me emotionally was, and I have a photo of this, actually. Maybe I'll bring it up on screen if I can. If I, can. Um, I remember we were staying in this uh, apartment for, like, the first two weeks before we moved into a house. Um, and I went out on the street because I was a curious kid, just looking, looking what there is to do. And also I was bored, right? And there were these, there was these girls about the same age as me. There was eight of them, and they were all wearing like saris or in, or just like they were wearing Indian type clothing. And they were all like looking at me like I was obviously like I was a foreigner, and they'd probably never seen someone their age that was a white kid. And I remember feeling extremely uncomfortable. And it was also thinking about it now, it was such a profound moment for me in that in the in that sense because I was confronted with with experiences that were completely foreign to me and confronted with people that on an individual level you can actually interact with. And I'd also like to mention that in terms of notions of race or racism in particular, that was something that I was completely foreign to because I was, I think, five or six years old. These are things that were completely out of my purview. Um, So I think those two moments for me were particularly profound. But after that, I remember just completely being involved in in the culture and uh, embracing it. And I think that those were basically the only two moments I remember being uncomfortable with, um, essentially, which was that one moment before we moved and then that one moment when we were first moved. But ever since really... <laughs> to be honest, when we first got there, like the transition as a young kid was almost immediate. And I think that comes back to the notion of just accepting things the way they are and not having any judgment or casting any value judgment on what the situation is and just being accepting of this is the life I live now. And these are the experiences I live. This is the food I eat. These are the people I interact with. And this is in itself a beautiful experience because it is being, I guess, in the now, being in... Being in the present and being completely involved in that process, um, and yeah, th- th- those that's the only that's the only really that's the only way it really, inv- uh, I guess, affected me in an emotional sense. I don't know if that completely answered your question. I went on a bit of
1: tangent, no, no, but not at all, man. A lot of yeah. interesting things that I want to bring up, some of which I mm-hmm. want to ask you now, and some later. But um, yeah, for sure. you said this one thing that after you came, you had this sort of disequilibrium where obviously things are different. People are looking at you weird. But then, then there mm. came a point when you started to accept things as they are and you embraced mm. the new life. You accepted what is real in the here. You started living in this, the moment. And that just c- connects mm. to how I, I believe children are more susceptible to living in the here and now, whereas as we become adults, we get more conditioned and we, we start thinking more about the past and the future. But as a child, we are just in the here and now, and I believe it it is more easier for a child to change and adapt because even neurologically a child's brain is more pl- neuroplastic and more uh, yeah, flexible rather than an sure. adult's mind, which is more like hardened and conditioned and, and just stuck up. But what I'm really curious about is what happened after you, you embrace the new life because, Obviously, I'm guessing people may still have looked at you weird, Uh, even now, if you go back there, even though you are very used to the culture and whatnot, you can speak uh, in the local, not fully in the local language, but basically communicate and shock people.
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) Exactly. People will still look at you weird, right? People will say, oh, can I take a selfie, sir? And, And whatnot. So I'm curious to know more specifically how things changed, even though in the external environment, I'm guessing nothing changed that much. Like no one really started seeing you in a different way that, Oh, now he's a part of our culture because he's accepted, right? Like people are still going to look at you here, but how did it shift in the internal sense? How did your internal experience shift if it did after you embraced the new culture?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think the uh, the simple answer to this is how what would happen to anyone once they accept this their current circumstances is once you reduce the resistance or remove the resistance you're allowed to flow you're allowed to be and you're allowed to I guess experience things to the fullest extent and that's essentially what happened for me I, I can give you an example of I guess uh, I can give you an example of why I think how I how I integrated and how that essentially manifest itself and also how I just uh, and in a sense as this young random white kid in the middle of India was just um, a part of a culture that was completely foreign to me but I I guess embraced it wholeheartedly so I remember I was probably in second I was in second grade or third grade so I was maybe like eight or nine years old um, and I remember I lived in this place called Banjara Hills and up the road from me there was like a local village and it's not a village in the sense of what like the West would think of a village. It's, it's a bit misleading, um, but I know you, what you, you'll understand what I'm talking about Shashwood, but there's essentially a, a bunch of, there's a bunch of like little like restaurants, but they're not restaurants. Like I said, there's a lot of terms that don't match up with what the Western view of restaurant is and stuff like that. But there's this little shop and there's like these cooks outside and they're making this Indian breakfast. I mean, they don't have to eat it for breakfast, but there's dish called Idli. And they have chutneys and everything. And I walked up to the road by myself. I was eight or nine, by the way. Um, I walked up the road by myself in my chupples or in my, my thongs or in my um, sandals, whatever the Americans call it in Australia. We call sandals, thongs. Um, but I walked up there in my chappals. And I went up to to the to the bunch of these guys that were making idli in this huge wok. Oh, uh, not in the wok, but this they had this huge wok around them and all these machine like all these little like, I'm um, cooking gear. And I said, I said, can I have can I have idli, please? And they're like looking at me like this random like eight year old getting idli, and they're like, what the hell is this white kid doing? He's like, you know, D- does he even know how to like what idli is? Anyways. So they give me this idli and it's in this plastic bag. So all this idli is in this plastic bag. And then they have three other bags full of chutney. And I think it was like 20 rupees or something. And then I walked back home and I ate the idli. And that in it of itself, that's what a, maybe a young Indian boy in a village would do on a daily basis or maybe on a weekly basis, whatever it is. But for, for, for someone who was white to just, when I say someone who's white, I mean someone that's coming from a Western culture that's completely, and this completely different I don't think you can ever emulate that experience in the West. Um, coming from a culture that's completely different, that is a very daunting thing to do, right? To, a sense, immerse yourself and not only eating the, not eating Indian food, but eating Indians' food from the street, and then also going up to to vendors and buying things and doing all these sorts, and then going home and eating it like it's no big deal, which it wasn't a big deal. But I, I suppose from my experience, for me, that was something that came quite naturally because I remember asking my mom, like, yeah, can I go get Italy up the road? And, you know, it, it was, it was a, I think that moment in of itself was quite profound for me because I just remember I was, I guess, a part of the culture and there was no questions asked. And I think that also helps that I didn't have any older siblings or I had a very open, my mom was very open. So she never really questioned. She just let me kind of be free in this experience, be free in this environment. And yeah, I, I think for me, once you remove the resistance, once you remove the pull, you can live life to the fullest extent. And although there is risk in just accepting everything, for example, I was quite young. So, you know, I could have gotten myself in sticky situations, but I never felt that way. Um, And maybe how you feel is different to what reality is, but I think irrespective of the fact, like by removing the resistance, I was able to completely live my life to the fullest.
1: Something interesting you said while you were in Australia, when you first heard, am I going to are we going to live in tunnels, right? On the surface level, that's just like, what the fuck? But on yeah, yeah, a more yeah. deeper philosophical level, I think that's actually a very profound question. And, and what you did right there answering that thing, you know how you said you were not, like what I essentially heard was you were not put into those tunnels, even though this place may have seemed like a tunnel. Yeah, at face value, exactly. You were let free, uh, even though you were a child and, and usually parents are quite skeptical about, you know, especially in a new country. Oh, my God, I can't let my white kid go out in the streets. Oh, he's going to be, uh, you know, like, I don't even know. Horrible things are going to happen. But your mom, yeah, yeah. I, I would say, was um, quite different in that sense where she did not mm. want to put you in that tunnel. She wanted to let you be free. Um, yeah. And you were hence exploring these these different things. Now, something else that came up was just this idea of culture and how, um, you know, how you face two separate different cultures as a child and what that does to a person's identity. I think that in itself is quite an interesting notion, especially going into a future where cultures are not so nationalistic and not so siloed or tunneled, but rather more open and more globalized. And um, how I see it as... It's, it's sort of a deconditioning of our nationalistic cultures to give rise to a new global culture or a new global village through tech and these new realities that we are experiencing right now. Um, that was just another point. And then lastly, I found it quite interesting. You know how you were saying uh, chappals or flip-flops or, or, or songs or whatever you call it. It's, it's quite interesting how words, different words, that mean essentially the same thing have a, a very different effect on our perception of reality. And um, just kind of like a diversion on, onto a, like a tangent, uh, which is I heard of this study where uh, basically they say that our language creates our reality. And the study that proves this yeah, was sure. kind of like this study done in uh, a jungle in Africa with a tribe that had apparently 16 different words for the color green, but no apparent word for the color blue. And so the experiment they ran was they showed sixteen different shades of green with one particular blue um, to the tribe, and to them they saw all that as different shades of green. They were not able to identify the blue, whereas when we see it, like let's say you and me looked at it, we'd see one blue and all of them the same green. And to me, that is just such a profound, um, uh, profound insight, which is that just because we don't have a certain word for a certain Uh, object in our reality, we cannot perceive it. And so uh, we can go off on other tangents later, but just the fact that you have had these, various cultural impacts on you where you have different languages embedded within you. That's why they say being bilingual is so much better than just being monolingual or whatever the word is, because you are literally expanding your mind and seeing more of reality in a sense, right? Flip-flop, give me a sense. You see something else. Chappals, I see something, you see something else. Essentially we're talking about the same thing, but we see completely different things. Um, That was, those were just a few things that came up for me
0: yeah man i completely agree um and i think also as well just to add on to that not only is it the words themselves that carry the different meanings but also the the stories that you think about so maybe there's certain stories that are that are elicited from hearing the word and, or hearing the word flip-flops or hearing the word thongs even those words in themselves can trigger certain stories and then those stories can trigger certain ideas. And this idea of language, the importance of how words can carry such different meanings, even though they mean exactly the same things or even slightly similar things. Um, And I know that there was also another study as well that did this with another village in, I think it was somewhere in Polynesia, where they're talking about our expressions on our faces and how certain, certain villages, for example, uh, in this, area in Polynesia when we would smile it would give off a different meaning what other of the West would think or what the East would think you know that's a very interesting idea in and of itself but anyways digressions aside I think this idea of um difference and coming back to similar to similar conclusions is something that I'm sure that is still present in the viewers minds and I and I talked a little bit about how my individual my experience in a diverse country was very profound for me and how it's led me to be quite a curious person in some sense. And I'd love to hear that same story from your perspective um, and hear that perspective of yours from, like I said before, the liberal versus the conservative side.
1: Sure, man. And just one last thing to add on, which is this whole notion of stories. I believe that we are creatures that perceive reality and think and and whatever we do, we do in stories because even right now what we are doing is basically sharing stories. The way we learn truly is through stories. And uh, this kind of ties into how today's education systems are losing touch of stories and it's kind of like pushing more like information, factual memorization and whatnot, which doesn't quite work, but um, I can try to connect that to my personal story. So, like I was mentioning, I was born and brought up in a conservative family, at least, well, not brought up, but born in a conservative family. Um, And maybe some of the people watching maybe may have heard of this community of Marwadis. And uh, Marwadis or Madhus are meant to be one of the most uh, stingy businessmen. Or in Hindi, we'd call that there's like sort of an insult, which is Kanjus Marwadi which just basically means a fucking stingy ass businessman or a stingy ass guy. People use, use literally the community I'm born in as an insult to call stingy people because, because the community I'm born into are so conservative. And so just, you know, they just want to keep on counting the cash, just hustle and do business. And uh, we're known for the fat bellies that we have and, and uh, the shops that we own and all the businesses that we run. So, that's the kind of family uh, community that was, I, I was born into. But the flip of, of where my story became sort of interesting is uh, where my mom comes into this story. Because even she was born into the same, s- similar sort of uh, conservative uh, Marwari family background. But she went through her own set of experiences as a child and uh, some, some traumatic experiences which made her feel that I do not want to give my child an experience like this. This conservative system and this this sort of uh, system and belief that we have about society, like this more conservative mindset can be very detrimental to a person's growth. And I don't want to give my child that. So when my mom got married, she she basically, her focus after I was born was just me. And she was like this super protective mother, right? She never wanted me to get hurt or uh, you know, be, be like exposed to anything violent or vulgar or get influenced by all these conservative people. So she found this very interesting cool, school, sorry, not cool. She found this very interesting school called, um, which was based on Waldorf education, like I mentioned in Hyderabad. It was one of the very first ones over there. And she thought like, okay, this seems like a different schooling system. And I'm just going to put my kid over here. Um, and eventually she also became a teacher in the school just because like I said she was so protective she always wanted to see me she always wanted to like be around me and wanted to give me that holistic sort of um, experience not just at school but at home as well because uh, it could be quite detrimental if in school something was happening something completely separate and then at home it was a completely different story Um, and although I did sort of experienced that it was not to that great an extent because my mom kind of put me into this shell uh and into this bubble which which kind of burst at one point but we'll come to that later um of of this this Waldorf education system. And so if for the people who've never heard of this system, I can kind of uh describe what this schooling system was like. So basically Rudolf Steiner uh is this Austrian philosopher who who was the scientist and academic who kind of went crazy and turned into a self-proclaimed esoteric. So he started speaking about the spiritual world and connecting with the higher worlds and pursuing freedom and truth and whatnot. And it sort of became an occult in a a way. Although it is not a religion, it is a free system of uh, teaching and uh, nurturing through uh, educating and and healing. Um, What basically this guy believed in was that... uh, Uh, education systems do not need to be uh, propaganda machines, they can be actually very healing experiences for the child and uh, bring up children who are actually very responsible and caring and uh, free in their mind. And so that was the kind of philosophy that this guy had, Rudolf Steiner. and basically the story is that it, it, it just imagine like a very hippie liberal school where every day when we go to school we're singing and dancing and then uh, playing games and not doing too much academic stuff. I did not learn ABCD until like the first grade and even when I did learn ABCD it was not through memorization of, uh, of these things but rather we started to sing ABCD. We started to like learned sto- we basically learned through stories and through these imaginary uh, realms that the teacher brought within the classroom and it was like a very uh, soothing colorful classroom and we didn't have this sort of ranking system and we didn't have like a testing system people were not put through this com- competitive environment where everyone is fighting against each other and all that it was very very holistic and, and uh, natural in a sense so that's the kind of system I went through uh, pretty much until middle school. But um, I'm going to pause there because I've said a lot of things. And mm, yeah, say whatever you yeah, for to. sure.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that you mentioned. And I can definitely um, relate to some of them being that my, like I said before, my siblings went to Astana school. Um, I know for a lot of, a lot of uh, our viewers, potentially, they would probably have gone to like a normal school. By normal, I mean, I guess a lot of normal, like grading, ranking against peers, um, a lot of reading, and then also just doing tests and examinations and things of these sorts, which seems to be a slight divergence from Steiner way of school. So I think just to paint a picture, could you give an example of what a normal class would look like if you, as, as a Steiner student,
1: what would that look like? Yeah, man, I, I absolutely loved going to school and it was an absolute pleasure to be at school. So basically the first thing we do as we entered uh, the school was we'd form a sort of line. Uh, and so before like we actually did all that, everyone would just be playing in the in the playground or whatever. And then once it was time for, for us to go into the classroom, the teacher would sort of uh, come at the gate and uh, very gently wish us in the morning, each and every child, she would shake our hands and wish us good morning, looking straight into our eyes with a bright smile. And every single child would go through that. It was not just like, okay, now everyone get into the class, uh, open up your old number. Da, 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 da. No, that was not how it was. The teacher was absolutely yeah. like a sweetheart. And she was kind of like our mother. She, she basically taught us everything um, from whatever, math, science, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Even though we didn't have all these subjects, um, how it worked was the first first hour of the class was called a main lesson. And that was the only kind of head work that we did. What Steiner believes in is the balance between the head, the heart, and the hand. And he says that uh, head work should not come into the first seven years of a child. The first seven years of a child should be more focused on giving the child goodness in this world. And so we were, in this main lesson, just told a lot of stories. Uh, I'm kind of speaking about when I came into grade one. We were singing songs, and uh, every day the teacher would introduce to us one new letter. So let's say I remember very vividly how she brought, up, brought to us the letter K. Right? She told us this story about how there was this king in, a, in this place, and uh, sort of how her, his, uh, the princess did something which was kind of stupid. I don't remember exactly what. But uh, the king basically got angry and he said, I am going to banish you. And he made this like figure where his arm and leg came in front. And so what that does is that kind of brings about this K figure where this is the hand, this is the feet, and he's driving that, uh, the princess outside. And so I don't really remember the exact story, but that visual is so stuck in my head, um, which is just kind of t- t- making the point that, um, we were taught through art, through stories, through feelings and not, and rather, rather than like intellectual knowledge and like head work and, 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 all that. And so every day in the main lesson, we would first form a circle. We would sing songs. We would say a prayer. Um, we would kind of like hear the story. And then from the story, we would learn something, which, which kind of we made, we put into our own books. So that was another interesting thing, which was, we never had any textbooks we absolutely did not, we were not given any sort of material or syllabus or any of that crap. And instead the philosophy was that each child makes his or her own textbook. So the teacher would say the story, she would bring this out, she would draw a picture on the board, and then we would make our own impressions of that in our notebook. And we would kind of bring that out in our own imagination and and, then however we think of that. And so even now, I have all these notebooks that, um, that I would call my own textbooks that I created. And the beauty is that even though everyone was having the same experience, everyone had their own subjective uh, feelings that they put into that textbook rather than having this like objective truth that we must follow that was guided by the syllabus and that was uh, given by the board. And if you don't follow this, you're going to not get a good grade and all that. So basically it was like a very safe environment, very, 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 very holistic and whatnot. Uh, and then we would have like more artistic activities. So on one day, maybe we would have uh, art and craft or one day we would have painting. One day we would have woodwork. One day we would have pottery. One way we would have a building, you know, just artistic things that required us to use our hands and engage in something that was more sensual, like more tactile. Basically the last half of the day was more like uh, I remember it was either engaging in language, which was like learning a second language or or something like that again through stories, or it would be engaged in some sort of physical activity, so some sort of play or gymnastics or games or you know just something physical. So we had the intellectual, we had the artistic side, and then we had the physical side along with like language and and, and all that stuff and so last thing is that the way the block system so the you know how I said there were main lessons every morning what would happen is that we would have one main lesson a month and then in the next month we would have another main lesson so I learned about Mm. really interesting things like astronomy and Greek mythology and Mesopotamia and even before Mm. Avengers came up with Odin and all that we were hearing stories about how there are all these uh, gods uh, uh, doing all these weird things even though I don't have like very strong memories i still remember we just learn about really weird things that i did not see my cousin at home who who went to a very sort of different system go through what i saw was at home this guy was getting sort of beaten up and he had to go through tutorings and he was always on the you know on the hook he had to be doing all these crazy things and he was always sort of uh, uh, he seemed sort of unhappy he seemed sort of destruct- destructive in nature and and Always kind of addicted to either fast food, junk food, cartoons, uh, video games, and all that. Whereas for me, my it was quite strict. Where I was never allowed to engage or watch TV. I was never allowed to eat junk food. I was never allowed to engage in most people. That would uh, like most children. That most children would engage in. My mom was quite strict even at home, and she would follow that Waldorf philosophy throughout um, my my upbringing.
0: Wow. There's, there's so much there that I think I can I can see the correlation between how you can become quite a curious person, um, especially what, if you come from a conservative family to moving into this way of life that is completely op- opposite to maybe the, the the caste or the family or just the, the place that you come from. It It allows you to experience things in a way that you would never conceive of just from faith, just from your your initial experiences with your family, one thing that I'm quite curious of is the effects that the schooling has on you. So it seems it seems to me that you've had a very very good experience to the system, and I think comparing the Steiner school system to maybe the regular school system. I think the regular school system is flawed in many ways, which we'll touch on another podcast. But in some ways, it, it, it caters to a certain group of kids, right? It caters to those academic kids, those kids that are very numerical and maybe very objective in some ways. Whereas the Steiner School, it seems to cater more to the subjective, the experiential, the artistic, the musical, et cetera, et cetera. So something I'm curious of is, do you think Steiner, the, the Steiner way of, of, of schooling, and this is just from a completely uh, devil's advocate point of view, do you think the Steiner way of schooling is effective for all students, or do you think it has a similar issue but a different target market where it caters to the subjective but maybe not so much the objective? What are your thoughts?
1: That's a very, very interesting, man. So I believe that we are both subjects and objects and we have both that right brain and left brain. And so maybe this may not have been apparent yet, but I was being brought up in this conservative family. And I, Uh, My assumption or how I see conservative mindsets is more to be this sort of left brain, logical, analytical, objective about things in, in the way they see things. Right. And so being brought in a family, I did have in my genes that objectivity within me. And even now, I like I would consider myself. Uh, quite an objective person. When like a subjective person sees me or a person who's more right-wing, even more artistic, they'd be like, yo, this guy is so freaking analytical. Like he analyzes the shit out of everything. And so I would say I was quite the objective mindset person. And not just me, I think a lot of my classmates also were, were had that objective mindset because I do believe that India's culture uh, today, this this is very arguable, but I I get this feeling that it is a little bit more objective but again if you compare it to like the west obviously not um but mm-hmm. my sure. answer to that is that i do believe steiner's uh, philosophy does work on any human being uh, because essentially we are both subjects and objects and we it's not like we don't have half the brain and we have only the other half we do have both sides what steiner steiner is not just saying that you must only use art and and all these uh, artistic subjective things in in the way you 're brought up, he just says that there is a right time for the right thing to do, so, like I said, in the first seven years, it is important for the child to to come up with goodness and to see the world as a wonderful place. Then he says, in the second seven years of a uh, child 's life, a child must see beauty because from the ages of seven to fourteen, a child is going through this a huge emotional upheaval because we go through puberty and that's actually an interesting uh, phase of my life that um, I would like to talk about. And I would like love to hear how this was for you, because I believe everyone goes through this great dark dip. And so what Steiner says is in during these times, um, the child must be shown a lot of beauty. Uh, In any way, whatever you do, you must bring beauty into that thing because the child is going through some really dark, weird times and this sort of metamorphosis of of the human being, right? Because it's going from one phase to another. And then finally, Steiner says that in the third uh, seven years of the life, which is from 14 to 21, a child must be in the pursuit of truth. And that is where I see this whole objective, this more intellectual sort of thing coming in. And so I I find, I found it quite interesting because my conservative family would think my mom is absolutely some crazy maniac hippie who's putting, who's ruining her child's life, putting her in this like stupid system, which is not going to prepare the child for the future and has, he's going to be doomed and he's going to be a stupid ass, dumbass kid. But I actually think that since I was not intellectualized and forced with this objective knowledge about the world at a young age, I am even more curious about the objective side of things and pursuing the truth, right the pursuing utopia, pursuing these big dreams um, and, and becoming more objective uh, and intellectual in in this phase of my life so the answer to to the question my finally wrapping up is that. I believe that what Steiner was trying to do was really look into the deeper side of the human being and uh, catering to the human soul. That's what he would say, the human spirit, rather than just uh, educating the bodies and turning it into propaganda machines. Um, So, yeah, man, one last quote Mm -hmm. that Steiner said that resonates with me is art must become the life soul of uh, uh, the art must become the lifeblood of the human soul. And so I I quite resonate with that regardless of whether a person is objective or subjective because uh, story is a form of art. What we're doing here is a form of art. We are, reality is a form of art. And so if we are immersed in artistic experiences, then uh, all the mental health problems that seem to be coming to rise today are not so so difficult to deal with um, because art in itself is a very healing process, I believe. But I'm going to stop right there.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, th- there was so much. There was so much there. So, first of all, thank you for sharing. There's a lot of experience that I can see that was very. The experiences that you had, are obviously, of course, very formative. Just even from your words, you can see that when you have art in your life, it is in some sense. It overcomes, it overtakes you in a way that is the best way possible. It 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 shapes your reality and it shapes the way that you perceive things and also the way that you value things as well. Because if you come from a very objective family or a very objective way of living, there's I know personally, like a lot of my friends um, who are very objective. When they see things like art or when you talk about things like art galleries or just things that you know that are more artistic in a sense, more right brain. you know, there's often met with responses like, well, you know, art's useless or something of those ways. Right. And I think that's also, um, I think that's very common in some sense from people that come from that very left brain, very logical, sequential, analytical. Um, So I think it's very important when you cover these notions of you have to make sure that the child embraces both, not only the objective, but the subjective. And if they're very subjective, then you have to make them known of the objective. And I think that may be where the the says the education system is failing because maybe the current modern day education system robs us of the learnings that we have in our subjective experience, and maybe that's something where the Steiner schools maybe need to work on as a more objective sense. But I, of course, I don't know what the object what the objective schooling is like, or what the the truth schooling to, in that last category of life is like. But I think overall, there's, this brings us to interesting crossroads, which is, I think, my experience with growing up in a foreign country and growing up in a very diverse, interesting uh, arena, I suppose, that I was indulged in. And you growing up from this very right-leaning or very conservative family and being put into this left, uh, left-leaning left or maybe more liberal uh, way of living, more experiential, has created this dynamic in between in, for us where we are both very curious people and I think we can I think just we can pin that in for a second just talk about how interesting that is and how we have lived completely different lives you've lived obviously in some sense we both lived in India and maybe that's the similarity that we share but aside from that our experiences that have shaped us have been completely different and yet we still arrive at this conclusion that we want to seek what makes us curious. We let our curiosity guide us and let our curiosity let us reach to certain conclusions. And that is something that I think is a lot of people may be able to relate to. Maybe not the curiosity element per se, but maybe other elements. Maybe it can come to make people arrive at why I believe the certain religion I have. Maybe it's because I had X, Y, and Z, and it's led me to believe this and other people will say, well, I've had ZYX and it's led me to believe in this. And it's very interesting to see how that dynamic essentially comes into play and how that dynamic, essentially you can see in every, everywhere in life and everybody has a similar experience.
1: So one interesting thing you brought up is uh, the notion of dynamics. And um, how I see, so there's this term called dynamic contraries that i have come about recently. And I find this whole idea of dynamic contraries being super interesting, because what this essentially is saying is that you have contraries to seemingly very different things, right? Like, so for me, a liberal schooling system and a conservative household, for you coming from Australia and like this Western place and then living in like an Eastern culture in India, right? we have these dynamics or these contraries, these dualities that we are faced with as children or even as adults. Um, And where things start to become interesting is when these two start to like become dynamic in a way where they start playing with each other. And so apparently things become way more interesting. People become way more interesting when there is a sense of dynamic contraries. So let me give you an example. Uh, this was an example given by Rava, Naval Ravi Kant in his podcast with Joe Rogan, uh, where he said that, well, Joe Rogan just found this guy super interesting because he was like this uh, Silicon Valley tech investor, you know, very objective. But at the same time, he had these very philosophical ideas and he had so much wisdom to share. So seemingly contrasting uh, thoughts but they were playing into one person, which is what made him very interesting. And he said, well, this is what the dynamic contrary is. This is what even Bruce Lee was. On one side, he was this martial artist, this like fighter kind of manly personality, but he had like this whole Taoism uh, philosophy embedded within him. And he was speaking about all these philosophical notions while fighting. And so that made him interesting. Even on a more like surface level example, if you have Uh, like crunchy chips, then you want some really creamy dip to go with it. Or when you're having like sweet popcorn, then you want to add some salt into it. And so that creates that dynamic contraries. It makes that, um, even art in that sense, it has this tension. Art is not flat. It's not like monotone. You need a sense of duality and a sense of tension to make things more interesting. Um, And I find that very fascinating because we both went through that but what I want to like, ask you now, Xavier, is, is this whole phase of metamorphosis, right? The second seven years, like Steiner would say, which is basically this phase of puberty, which where, where, where we're having all these hormonal changes and we're going through all these weird emotions and feelings and, and um, how these seemingly contrasting dualities may actually, well, rather than playing with each other and becoming dynamic, they may actually cause a lot of inner conflict. Um, And even though someone may not have that feel like they have that uh, dynamic contrary or any contraries within them, and they've been brought up in a very siloed system. I still do believe that uh, inner conflicts will arise during that phase of metamorphosis, regardless of, of one's upbringing. So Zaver, can you share a little bit about um, what your subjective experiences were in this phase of metamorphosis or this phase of puberty that you were going through?
0: Yeah. Yeah, man, for sure. And I, I think this is a really difficult question for me to answer just given that I think there was, I think a few moments for me that were quite interesting and put me on different paths. And I would say the most interesting moment just to for the essence of time and also for the essence of getting to the crux of what I think the most important development was, the most important moment for development was for me. And I think it was this dynamic between shifting schools and shifting to a more, to, to a schooling system that was more focused on my subjective experience and more focused on me as an individual rather than more of a group oriented, what is the the group outcome? What is the rest of the school doing? And although this is not particularly related to India as a whole, India is the, the, the foundation of this whole um, story. So for me, Um, just giving a bit of background. So like I said, I grew up in India for 10 years and I moved there when I was around five or six and left when I was 16. So for most of my elementary school, like I said, there wasn't any particular pivotal moment. I think for most part, it was a very, um, it was an experience that I loved and uh, that I still love to this day, thinking about just given how rich of an experience it was. Um, And I think the, the part or the the tension rather that started arising was when I started getting into high school. And I think this is a a lot of people can resonate with this is this period of adolescence. There's a lot of change and a lot of adaptation in terms of, of you become aware of identity. You become aware of, um, I guess, judgment. You become aware of many things that you never had to worry about before when you're a child. And for me, When I was in high school, I wasn't, when I first began high school, so, or middle school for American viewers, so between grades six and eight, um, or year six and year eight, um, I was, I would consider myself someone that was quite lighthearted. I didn't particularly enjoy academics that much. I wasn't that academically inclined. And I think that's because of a number of reasons. Obviously, that's where my passion for the education system comes through, is because of my, in some sense, my poor experience with the education system. But that aside, um, there was a moment where I was transitioning into um, grade eight, grade nine, where my parents decided they wanted to change my school, change where I was going to go to school. And I was, this is um, the same school that you were at, actually, it's the International School of Hyderabad. And they wanted to move me because they didn't think I was very academically inclined or that motivated to continue in that school setting which in some sense was true because I was very much focused on being around friends and being around um, just people that I, that I cared about and enjoying those experiences. And so essentially after, after a lot of debate with my parents, they ended up moving me to another school, which was an American school. And at the time, it was very difficult for me because I was essentially removed from my friend group. Um, Even though I was still in the same city, I could see them still. Um, I think anyone that has moved from schools can resonate with some fact that when you're removed from your social circle, even though you can still see them, it's a lot more difficult just because you don't see them Monday to Friday. Um, And this was a very important part for me because my personal motivations for going to school were, I guess, there weren't any. I didn't really care you know, I would do the bare minimum and do what was necessary to get by. And this is maybe the, like I was saying, the international school system that was present, um, which was focused on what was the group doing? If there's a couple people that are not doing that well, well, objectively speaking, if 90% of the group is doing well, there's always going to be a few outliers, you know, fuck them essentially. Um, and obviously that's a bit more of a harsh perspective. I'm sure that's not how they considered that. Can, that's not how they viewed the situation but in some sense that is very much how I was treated in some degree and some examples were for example maths class or English class there was a few people maybe four or five people that were pulled out of the classroom and kept outside and they had a, their own teacher um, and they were basically made separate from the group and it was very clear why because we were the students that were behind but it wasn't temporarily behind it was you were pulled out of the class for the whole year because you went up to speed. And so that's kind of some examples of maybe not being paid enough attention to in the sense of, from an education perspective, teachers not giving you a fair crack of the whip or whatever that may be. So anyways, um, when I transitioned to this new school, I had this teacher there called Miss Michelle and I had other teachers as well, but she was the one that uh, I was, uh, I was, I had the strongest relationship was with. And it was interesting because the school I went to, went to was similar to, uh, in, not in the Steiner perspective, but similar in the sense that it was a school designed to change the way that school was being taught. So they had a lot of, so a lot of my schooling from grade eight to grade 10 was online schooling, which to most people they're like, well, what do you mean by online schooling? That's a bit strange. Um, so you were like at home or, so essentially how the system worked was that we had to go to school physically to a school and there would be teachers at the school But we would do a lot of our learning through online classes. Um, And a lot of those classes were like videos that were made for that particular school. And um, so you would have biology, algebra, English, history, yada, yada, yada. And they would be all taught through an online mechanism. But you would do all the work at school. And if you had any questions, that's what the teachers were there for. And so, in some sense, this was the best thing that could have happened to me because, as someone that did not believe in, did not have any confidence from a from an education perspective, and someone that was, in some sense, ignored by teachers because I was maybe not that bright in some ways. Um, uh, th- this new school was really good because it put all the attention on the students. Because essentially, you had to make a checklist. And if you didn't get the checklist done, the teachers would come over to you and say, Well, hey, why haven't you done your Monday and Tuesday biology work? And um, this checklist, in some sense, was good because it gives students the agency to complete the work themselves. Whereas in traditional school, they give you the assignments and if you don't get them, you just fail or whatever. So in this new form of school that was online, you had this checklist that was giving you all the agency of students to complete. Um, And if you didn't complete it, the the teachers would come up to you and give you the support you needed to complete them. And this agency and this support and this care that I received from these teachers was what gave me the confidence to actually excel in school and i think that was probably the most pivotal part of my life because ever, from such a young age i remember feeling like i was such an idiot and not given the not not given an opportunity or maybe not given an opportunity may not be the right way to characterize it but maybe given an opportunity that was taken from him just based on the judgement of teachers as opposed to my ability um, I don't know if that makes enough sense, uh, makes complete sense, but essentially, by going to this new school, there was a huge cha- change in my perception of education, which was it is not about your IQ, it is it is more about the discipline of schooling and also the support and the systems that you have around you that allow you to be educated, allow you to gain an education, and that that was probably the 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 best the most profound experience that I had because that was essentially the jumping board I had to move on to um, to more academic or more objective ways of ways of living. And if I did not have that subjective um, experiential, you know, how are you doing? Do you need help? A lot of this attention. If I didn't have that, I think I would be a very lost, lost child and maybe turning into a lost adult. Because I know a lot of students go through the system they leave the school and they have no confidence, but don't believe in themselves. And they have a lot of these issues that happen. And if I didn't have that one teacher, I think there's a lot of things that could have gone wrong for me, but luckily I did have that teacher. And I I would say that was the most profound experience of my adolescence. And I guess the moment where I had the most hardship and had to overcome that hardship.
1: That's quite interesting, man. So what I'm hearing you say is that, you, they were like when you were in ISH International School of Hyderabad, you were kind of going through a system where you were, you, they kind of push you out, and you were feeling like this outlier in a sort of negative sense, and uh, that was sort of ruining your confidence uh, and your academic and intellectual growth. But then when you shifted to um, a new schooling system, which was. Uh, sort of more subjective in a way where the teachers truly cared about the children and uh, were there to offer support and help and uh, truly like try to inculcate a sense of curiosity and give autonomy of learning to children. Then uh, Mm -hmm. that was sort of that shift that came to you in terms of uh, uh, your, your adolescence and how your, you went on from being a child who was not so academically focused and not so uh, intellectual in a way and more like just social and, and uh, more of that fun type of guy to being a more like intellectual and more curious person as an adult today. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And also I just wanted to add on, I think there's, uh, th- there may be a problem of uh, people. A lot of people may have this curiosity that they have about things, but it may be, a, it may be the question of, do they have the confidence to pursue pursue their curiosity? I know a lot of people, just from personal experience, obviously this is anecdotal, but I know a lot of people that may be curious about things, but whether they pursue that curiosity is a separate issue. And I think there's if you don't have that confidence, it's a, it's, which is, I think, key to pursuing curiosity, um, it can be very detrimental to development. And so that's why I think that that moment was very important for me, because if I wasn't given that confidence, I may not be here today because I would be able to pursue these curious questions of life, these ways of living, et cetera, et cetera. And I also think in terms of that school system, why it was also, why it allowed that support system was because it was a very small school. So when I was in grade nine, I had four students in my class, which is extremely small. Um, And I think that was, I was very lucky to have that experience. But yeah, those are two things I just wanted to add on really quickly.
1: Yeah, man, thank you for sharing this. I I was trying to draw connections to how my adolescent experience was and at face value it seems so different because i would actually say i was quite the opposite from you but then actually like speculating it on a deeper level i see the connections and i see the similarities so if you allow me i'd like to share some of those similarities and differences with you yeah of course brother go ahead So um, when this whole, uh, so again, even I had this shift in schooling from this Waldorf education system uh, to the International School of Hyderabad, where I met Xavier in the seventh grade. And already in the time, like I was mentioning, I was having these conflicts, these inner conflicts, because I was being brought up in a very liberal system that was not focused on competition, but they were introducing little and little levels of it. But uh, I was being brought up in a conservative household, or or at least I had the genetics. I don't know if that's really true, whether you can have genetically, uh, you can genetically be programmed to be conservative or anything. But the point is that I I still had that conservative mindset where I was quite held on to the outcomes of things. Um, because I, I would consider myself in, in in the first school I was in, in the Waldorf school, quite like a jack of all trades. I was kind of good at everything. I was good at art. I was good at sports. I was good at studying. I was kind of like the the person, the range, right? I was not the best at anything, but I was pretty good at everything. Um, but when the sense of competition started coming in, uh, I started to, I noticed that I started to get very held down to the outcomes. And so I have like these three examples in three different areas of my life that I was absolutely shattered by. So one was when I had the first test of my life, the first academic test, which was just like a stupid test, not nothing like too serious. But I ended, it was on Roman history, I remember it very clearly. But I ended up getting lesser than my best friend, who at that time was much weaker academically than me. And so that completely completely shattered my confidence i was like what the hell is this how can this guy who was literally copying me in the test get more than me this is absolute bullshit i fucking hate this the system i hate every well not really hate it but i was just like what the hell like you know there, there was like this huge disequilibrium in my mind first that was one Academically. Then second, we had this event called the Olympics. And this was when we, after we studied Greek mythology and Roman history, we kind of embodied the the things that they had, which is the Olympics that they did, right? The Greek Olympics. And so we had these four different teams, which was Sparta, Athens, uh, I forget the other two, but basically earth, water, air, fire. And um, the point is that we had these uh, Greek teams and I was quite confident, uh, confident about my performance and I thought I'm gonna like you know do fucking great. I'm gonna be amazing, but the reality that turned out was I absolutely fucking sucked. This was competing against like three other Waldorf schools, which were all mixed teams, but by the end of it i did nothing absolutely nothing you know i completely failed in the objective side of things which was actually winning and then they had like these grace points which is like if someone was very graceful in the way they did things even that they had like reeds for and i fucking didn't do anything and after that experience i was quite shattered in my confidence physically as as well um and then last was socially i was i would also consider myself pretty good socially but not you know like an extroverted person but there came this point when I was going through this like hormonal change in, in sixth grade when this girl used to like me and it was quite weird because I was not a fan of this girl. I found her quite weird, even though when I look at her now, she's super hot. Um, but at that time, I didn't think she was cool. And my friends used to tease me because I used to get like I was very sensitive about these things. And there was a time I remember where I went through such emotional purge where I literally said I'm not going to school because I hate fucking school because they tease me with this girl and I was howling and crying at home. Now that I look back at it, it just seems ridiculous and like what the fuck was I doing? But I now understand that was the great metamorphosis that was like me dealing with my inner conflicts being held on to the outcome of things being very objective in a way yet subjective and sensitive. And I was not able to reconcile with these like seemingly opposite things. Now, where things became even more fucked up is when I went to the International School of Hyderabad and I kind of felt like an outlier because I was kind of like the only Indian Indian kid out there along with like this one other guy which who was very social so he got along quite well with everyone. But I felt like an outlier like what the hell these kids are all white they have an American accent I have this like weird <laughs> Indian accent. What the fuck is going on here this is been weird. So, and on top of like this, these hormonal changes, I don't understand their language. People are saying weird things. They're calling me by weird names, which really offended me. Like this one dude, this American guy turned my name into Sasquatch. And when I found out what the fuck was that? That was Martin. Do you remember Martin Barbosa? The American tall basketball player. He could not pronounce my name. And so he just called Oh me. my
0: fuck. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and man, I, I remember yeah, yeah. I, there were days when I was just in tears. I was like, what the fuck is this shit? What the fuck are they calling me? This is absolute bullshit. I hate this place. Right. So again, these hormonal changes, I was being very sensitive towards things and uh, quite like attached to what people said and like very, very like emotional about things. So that was like when all this like weird shit was happening, when I was so insensitive, not insensitive, very highly sensitive. Um, hormonal changes became kind of weird because, like I said, in, in the Steiner School, it was quite like a balanced system where they had all these like artistic things, which would be considered more feminine, um, along with all the objective masculine stuff. So I was going through, like, whenever, like, a person is going through hormonal change, uh, all sorts of hormones are playing into the body. And so what started happening was, like, a lot of, like, there was a lot of hormonal imbalance in my system, and sort of, like, a lot of estrogen started getting produced in my system, which is the more female hormone. And what uh, happened as a result is my body went all out of shape. And that shattered my confidence even more, uh, until, like, a long-ass time, right? I was, like... This fucking sucks. I hate myself. So in that way, it's quite similar. So again, tying it back to your story, Xavier, intellectually, I was fine. Like academically, all that, I never had any issues, but like dealing with people socially, you know, kind of like having this, like dealing with a a tribe or dealing with people was quite difficult for me because I came from a very, very different upbringing and a background and I had all these inner conflicts and I had no self-confidence. And so just finish wrapping that up. I was basically going like through this like weird uh, hormonal change where I was not able to adjust socially. And I still would say I, I have a little bit of uh, struggles adjusting with like regular things people do like social stuff and adjusting in social environments, but I've kind of gotten used to it. The point is that uh, that took a huge toll on me and has left a big impact on on who I am today because it kind of like shattered my reality, broke my self-confidence and it pushed me to ask deeper questions. I was always like, why the fuck is this happening? Who am I? What the fuck is the point of this life? Why do things like this happen? And I, my curiosity took over and I started looking into these things more and more. And that's when I kind of got into like more philosophical ideas and, and whatnot. But then another shift happened, a very like small shift which sure. is that I, I in 11th grade i left school i left ish and i said i need more of a challenge um and I, I went to a boarding school because this was ish was a really small school and like only 10 kids and i said okay maybe i need like more challenging environment where there's more people so i open up more and so i went to this like in so-called international school in bangalore called indus um and that that's like a completely different story but the The point is that I was there only for one year because it started to hamper my growth because I was a person who came from a much more free system of schooling into one that was very conservative and very closed and like very authoritative dictatorship kind of like system. And once I came back, I just became super passionate about doing something about the education system. I started to write about my experience and how I felt like I was in a gulag camp trapped in this school and how there needs to be something done about such stupid schooling systems. Well, no value judgment, not stupid, but systems that hamper one's emotional growth and one's freedom and one's sense to be able to think of what lies beyond. And so coming back, I came back to ISH. I know you, ha- you were there for a period of time and then you left again. Um, but that's when like things started to like reconcile. I was able to like, find my peace with social interactions, my peace with myself. Uh, I was able to find a more like adjust socially kind of a little bit more compared to before because now I was in a bigger environment at Indus where I was dealing with so many people from uh, all these like uh, different Indian states. So it kind of became easier for me. But that being said, Uh, the pivotal moment when everything changed for me in terms of the education system and my passion for doing something about this. And also like these philosophical ideas, I was questioning and questioning my own self and who am I and my identity and why are things the way they are. All of that changed when I took a gap year after my schooling. And uh, first the gap year was only to basically work on college apps and the startup that I was kind of working on a social venture because I was quite empathetic towards uh, underprivileged Uh, societies and I still am but I see it differently now but the point is what was more profound that happened to me was this course that I did called DEEP and what DEEP essentially stands for is Diploma in Experiential Education and Practices DEEP and on face value it seems like uh, it's probably just a course about education Um, but what I and, and at the beginning I was kind of really lost and confused because there was like all these teachers and trainers and educators were learning how to teach in classrooms. And I was like, yo, I'm just out of high school. What the hell am I doing here? But I kind of just went through it because my mom, um, who went through this weird system, she found a pivotal moment in her life through a teacher that came into her life. And the teacher who changed her life and empowered her was the same teacher that was doing this course called Deep. And so my mom said, you know, just try it out if you like it. Great, if you don't, then you don't need to do it. Uh, And I I gave it a shot. And uh, at the beginning, I was lost, as I said, but slowly uh, and steadily, I started to make sense of what was going on. And that, that experience really opened up my mind in terms of who I was, what is going on in the world, you know, the education system, I was able to reconcile with it. I was like, okay, there is a better way to do things. Things don't have to be extreme, like liberal, hippie, Steiner, Waldorf type or like extreme conservative and like a military indust type. There is a place in the middle, which li- the answers of which lied in this, this philosophy that uh, came about in deep, which is the experiential uh, learning systems. That was kind of like taking in the subjective nature and the objective and, and making learning and leadership happen through these various philosophies that hopefully we will be speaking about on this podcast. But aside from that, what it really opened up my mind to was uh, dealing with myself. How can I deal with myself and with people better in a better way? How can I uh, explore my curiosity in the fullest way? Because... On one hand, I did have these questions, but I was not able to pursue them because of my lack of self-confidence and not being able to deal with social situations. But this taught me, okay, how can I be more gentle? How can I be more open? How can I deal with my own human condition? How can I expand my own consciousness? How can I be more in the here and now and, and facilitate things, facilitate conversation, facilitate experiences that bring things alive, that are playful in nature, yet, are very meaningful at the same time. And so this experience was what kind of like, uh, really like opened me up to different things. And uh, once I went to Babson College to study business, uh, these ideas started making more sense to me because I saw that this was not just about the education system, but these philosophies and ideas could be applied to business. They could be applied to other things, but um, we shall talk about that later. But I know I've said a lot and I'm going to pause right there.
0: Yeah, for sure, man. And again, thank you for sharing. I think there's a lot of, I, I think the more that we kind of, di- we that we dive into these experiences that we have, there's all, there's so many places where they intersect and yet they still are so different. Like just to, to touch, on, touch on the previous points that we were discussing about uh, my journey of going to, uh, school that I thought I was from a social sp- point, from a s- social standpoint, from a more subjective standpoint. I thought I was, I, I had all that, and yet I was lacking the more objective intellectual side. And then once I went to this school and I was given a more, um, when I, I was, there was more attention that was given, I was able to flourish more in the objective and the intellectual and the academic sense. And then for you is slightly the inverse where you had the objective side and the academic side already, and you were exploring the side of you that you didn't know you had, which is the subjective side and things of these sorts. And so I just wanted to comment on that. And I thought how interesting it is, how these, these differences in our path kind of lead us to the same place in some sense, which is despite all of the differences, we still are very curious people and we still are very passionate about the similar things which is philosophy which is the education system which is psychology all of these things together and i know in terms of like you were saying you had this very pivotal moment when you did the the deep the d- diploma um and I, I can i can definitely see so many intersections between my life um with having mentors and having people that are the guides to your i guess your greater reality or guide you to a place that you didn't think that you were going to go down to, but you eventually did go down that path.
1: Exactly, man. I think (laughs) that kind of shows how we came with such different backgrounds and such dualities and were battling with like seemingly opposite kind of things, yet uh, coming to the here and now, we are at this point where we're different yet the same and that's the paradoxity of life right everything is different yet the same it's all nothing and everything at the same time and uh i don't want to get too philosophical about this but i want to ask you man about so we, we've kind of disc uh discussed our past in a general sense mm-hmm. i know we can go over like the last couple of years of our life, but maybe we can do that in another episode of how yeah, college sure. has been like, because that's a full experience that we could kind of jump into and explore and kind mm-hmm. of go into ideas about business and philosophy and what, or whatnot. But tying these stories back to the here and now, uh, given that we, like you, you've described this story and kind of re-experienced your life while you were speaking and, and compared it to my life, who would you say you are in this moment? How would you describe yourself be uh, if, in a mm-hmm. if maybe in a different way than what you described at the beginning of this podcast and what makes yeah, you come sure. to this point right now, given this story? Thank
0: you. Yeah. And I just wanted to clarify as well, when you say come to this point, do you mean quite literally come to this point where we're having this brand together? Is that what you mean? Just to make sure
1: it could be man however you perceive it to be sure why not? sure we,
0: we gotta we gotta make it interesting with the subjective uh, the subjective answer um yeah for sure i think uh, just I, I believe that given the experiences i've had and from growing up in a foreign country as well as having these very interesting and similar i guess, life crises, which is uh, maybe not having a great time in the education system, or maybe not being uh, feeling out of place in some ways, um, or all these issues that I think are very common for most people. I think at the end of the day, what it is, where I am right now, is I think I'm someone that is still trying to find his place in the world. But I think from this curiosity, what it has led me to is going on a path that is trying to seek some sort of, In I don't know if self transcendence is the best way to describe it. Cause I know that's a word you like using. So maybe I won't steal your word, but a uh, phrase rather, but I think I'm trying to seek something that is going beyond myself. And it seems really, maybe it seems quite pretentious or quite uh, abstract, but I, maybe I'll just elaborate what I mean by that. So um, I, I think something that something that I've been doing the past two years that I've become very passionate about, and maybe at the beginning I didn't have the right motives, but I think irrespective of that right now, I think I'm at the good place, which is um, indulging in reading and indulging in academics um, outside the university system and really... Diving deep into things that I'm curious about. I think once I started doing that, I was able to consider questions or thoughts or ideas that go beyond me. An example of this is something that we touched on in the last podcast about being a good ancestor. These ideas that I think are so profound, which which is when we start thinking about things that go beyond our life, we start increasing our scope and we start increasing our scope. We, I think... We change the, the way, or change the magnitude in which we can inf- we can influence change, and that is something I'm really passionate about now, and I really want to to live for. And this is an idea that I think uh, this is an idea that Kant, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, has talked about. And there's two modes of living. There's the motivations of inclination, and then there's the motivations of uh, purpose, the motivations of duty. And so essentially the motivations of inclination are those things that we do that are based on our desires or based on our experiences or based on our preferences. For example, choosing the flavor of ice cream that we want, or maybe choosing to go on a particular holiday because it will be the most pleasurable holiday versus doing things such as from our motives of duty, which is I am doing this because of I want to follow my purpose follow my duty. And this, is, this may be a radical position to take, but I think from from a Kantian point of view, something I want to try and do more with my life is live more from the, the perspective of the motivations of duty rather than the motivations of inclination. I want to live for a purpose, not for the sake of experiencing life and, and having the greatest pleasures, but rather to seek the greatest purpose and to influence the most change. And I think that's some, somewhere... I guess that is where I am now, as someone who is trying to seek change and trying to live for a particular duty or to use, a more Hindu, uh, to use a more word that's derived from Hinduism, which is to find my dharma or dharma or dharma, I don't know, whatever the pronunciation is. But I want to seek a duty and live for that duty as opposed to living for the preferences and desires that I feel. And that's where I think I am now. But I'd like to pass that over to you, Shashur.
1: Wow, man, that was, that was beautiful. And uh, I know we can like dive into more content ideas of living by virtue and living by duty. But I think uh, for the sake of time, I would just uh, say that we'll keep that for another time. And I will also kind of share who I am today and where I stand with this. So three things I would like to say. Uh, one is that I found this quote that I resonate, well, these three quotes that I resonate with, but one that describes who I am. Uh, So the first thing is that I always like to say I am an ancient soul in a modern body with a futuristic state of mind. And what this implies is the kind of balance between the past, present and the future. So ancient soul being the past, which is, I am quite intrigued by these philosophical ideas and these spiritual notions and these religious things that people have been doing about from the past. And I've uh, heard quite a lot of people, including shamans, telling me that, you know, I see that you are quite the seeker. You are some sort of an old soul, even though I never kind of get what that means. But I somewhere understand what they're saying, which is basically I'm super curious and I I I I I have this pursuit for knowledge and wisdom and that which lies beyond me, right? And so that's one ancient soul. I say I'm in a modern body, which uh, because of the experiences I went through, which took a toll on my body, which is I would say the problem of the typical modern day body, which is uh, the modern body is changing from being very, very masculine to more feminine and having this balance between the masculine body and the feminine body. And so that's why I say I'm in a, a modern body. With a futuristic state of mind, quite recently, I've been thinking about these ideas of the future, and a better future, and a change, and how can we bring about this better world, even though we realize that it is in the here and now, and the utopia is now, um, always striving to be better. And so that's the reason why I say I am an ancient soul in a modern body with a futuristic state of mind. Um, Another quote that comes to me in terms of our life stories, or at least for me, is, uh this quote by Douglas Adam and he says that I may not have gone where I intended to go but I think I have ended up where I needed to be and that again sort of encapsulates this whole notion of utopia which is that in the vast scope of things when I was probably in uh, high school I was like I hate my life I don't like this I why, why am I doing this I want to be somewhere else but when I look back at it when I kind of reflect on it I'm able to make more sense of it from a greater perspective and i understand that well that's not the trip i wanted but that's the trip i needed that as a lot of psychonauts would say because life always gives us what we need rather than what we what we really want rather than our desires and the last quote or the last uh, kind of phrase that i would like to share with you is this this uh this notion by timothy Lurie, uh this this psychedelic uh psychologist from harvard and he says admit so i quite resonate with it and he says admit it you aren't like them you're not even close you may occasionally dress yourself as one of them watch the same mindless television shows as they do maybe even eat the same fast food sometimes but it seems that you uh, that, that the more you try to fit in the more you feel like an outsider and that's something i have quite resonated with all my life um, watching the normal people as they go about their automatic experiences. For every time you say club passwords, uh, like have a nice day and weather is awful today, eh? You yearn inside, say forbidden things like, tell me something that makes you cry. Or what do you think Deja Vu is for? Face it, you even want to talk to that girl in the elevator. But what if the girl in the elevator and that bald man who walks past your cubicle at work are thinking about the same thing. Who knows what, might, uh, what you might learn from taking a chance on, uh, on conversation with a stranger. Every, everyone carries a piece of the puzzle. No one comes into life by mere coexistence. Trust your instincts, do the unexpected, and find the others. That's one quote that I quite resonate with, um, even though yeah. I feel like an outsider, I have this, uh, uh, this desire to connect with people who might seem different from me. Mm-hmm. And I, the more and more I think about it, I do believe that every single person carries a piece of that puzzle. It's kind of like what we discussed in our first podcast mm-hmm. about the truth and how everyone sees a part of the truth, which is true. And so if I'm able to open my heart up, even though I may seem so different from people, if I am able to open my heart up to these people, if I am able to detach from my human condition and my past prejudices and my and my, and my my biases, then I will be able to look at things from a different perspective and accept things as they mm-hmm. are as you mentioned at the beginning and not be siloed Mm. into tunnels. And um, I Mm. see this podcast as an embodiment of that. I have been quite fearful of putting myself out there because of all these anxieties I have had. But uh, this, this podcast is a way for me uh, to find catharsis and to actually take that leap of faith and put myself out there and believe that something uh, bigger than myself lies out there that I can seek and, and, hopefully do something about uh, all these things that we're talking about, but that's where yeah, sure. I stand with who I am today.
0: Yeah, man. Look, the, the quote that you mentioned at the end about uh, from, from, I forget the author or the writer that mentioned that quote, but I think that's such a, a great way to encapsulate um, maybe some of the questions that we have about what it is to live and is it is to live to live by status quo or is it to ask questions that maybe you'll be looked at as like a weirdo or things of these sorts or you know kind of going beyond maybe some sort of superficial social norms that we have in place Um, I think that is definitely one thing but uh, one of the bigger ideas that I pulled out from all that you were mentioning about all of that was that the idea of utopia and because a lot of our viewers will be like well you know you guys are told us a great story about India and Steiner and all these things, but I guess so what, right? Like how does this relate to the to the, to the the overall brand? And I, from for me, I, this is probably one of the last things I wanted to mention, but it is that the idea of utopia is in some sense a reflection of the human experience. And what I mean by that is you were mentioning how, you know, this idea of utopia is that you never really reach it. Like you're always aiming for it. You're always striving towards it, but you never get there but you get very, very close, but you're not always there. And I feel like that's kind of what living as a, hu- what the human experience is, is we often live with some sort of purpose. We live with some sort of drive, something we want to meet. Maybe it's like a particular a goal. Maybe it's to make a certain amount of money, or maybe it's to, to start a family with X amount of kids or, you know, all these goals. And sometimes we have these goals that we don't reach. But like the quote that you said, it's, you, you don't end up, you don't get what you intended, but you end up what you needed, and I think that's what it is. What utopia is, is that when we aim for something, aim for a bigger goal, we may never get to the end goal, but we may get what we need, or we may get what it is essentially that makes us better in from a from a societal point of view. From, a government point of view, from individual point of view, from all sorts of levels. And I think in that sense it allows us to live the life that we want, even though we never maybe intended on getting want intended on that specific life. And yeah, that's that's all I would really wanted to add, to be honest.
1: So last thing that I'd like to add to that, which is this notion of utopia, which is we that's something that we're always seeking, always moving towards, but never really there. Uh, Well, that doesn't mean so kind of going back to my story, which was I was so attached to the outcome. I was so attached to this perfectionist mindset, this utopia that I wanted to reach that that was actually becoming very detrimental on me. And so I've learned through my experiences with deep. Uh, to be more in the here and now and to embrace the process and have this sort of growth mindset as Carol as Dweck would say rather than being fixated upon the outcome and that's not to say that you know just be in the here and now and then forget about the outcome because the outcome and the process are just two sides of the same coin the journey is the outcome and the outcome is the journey and so utopia and, and that's why the name i see utopia is now because we're always striving to be better but just because we're not there does not mean we're not going to be happy in this moment because we may not go uh, we may not reach where we want it to be but we will always be where we need it to be and so that's that's how i see what you just said in relation to our brand and, and this whole community where we're trying to create utopia here and now And so my final message, like Timothy Leary always says, is to find the others, to seek what lies beyond, to find other people who are curious, to engage in these dialectical conversations, to share stories, uh, which may be more subjective than objective and, and kind of connect on a deeper level and see what the human condition and what the human experience really is about. Like you said, David, the human experience is a reflection of utopia. And so the only way to, uh, to, to get to utopia is by, 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 by kind of introspecting and by engaging with the human experience and the human condition. And that's my invitation to everyone, uh, whoever is listening.